Welcome to Social Distancing by Coastal Roots Radio. Our continuing coverage of the impacts of COVID-19 on North America's coastal fisheries and fishing communities. So it's definitely hasn't slowed down at all. If anything, I think it just continues to pick up. We're just lucky that we have something going on that we can stick to. Some of these restaurants that were were there, they're not going to be there. You know, there are some uh, needles in the haystack here that uh, are coming out of COVID as well. I'm your co-host, Emily D'Souza. I'm joined by Philip Loring. And I'm Hannah Harrison. If you're new to Coastal Roots, we're an international collaboration of communities, scholars, activists, and others who are interested in supporting the health, resilience, and sustainability of coastal communities around the world. We focus this podcast on storytelling, and this week we're bringing you stories from voices that our regular listeners will recognize. That's right. Over the past few episodes, we have been sharing stories from around North American fisheries, but behind the scenes, we are checking in regularly with a handful of people to follow their journey as they cope with the challenges and opportunities presented by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll be bringing you up to speed with what the last few months have looked like from their perspective. Now, I'm really looking forward to this. So let's start out in Prince William Sound, Alaska, where the Copper River salmon fishery got underway a couple of weeks ago. Emma and Curtis Kramer gillnet for salmon in this fishery, and they direct market some of their product through their business straight to the plate. Last time we spoke with Emma, she and her family had been delivering the last of last year's freezer stock door-to-door in their home of Girdwood, and were preparing to head out fishing. This week, we were able to catch up again now that the season is underway. I feel like we're in like the 10th opener. You know, we started there on May, second week of May. Um, we, our first opener in Cordova was anticlimactic, um, as it was for many fishermen. It was good weather, which I always appreciate, but we caught five sockeye, period. Five total sockeye. The good news was, is that, uh, it gave us a reason to drive the boat four hours back to where we are from to go see my daughter's graduation parade. And it was a, it was a good reason to go back home and lick our wounds, so to speak. But um, the Copper River numbers were really low to start, and so they closed uh, maybe after the third, I think the fourth opener was one of the first closures, and they've had a few closures since then, and the numbers of fish that are going up the river are increasing, so that is good. It hasn't been a good year for fishermen on the Copper. Um, I'm glad the scientists keep us from, from overfishing, so I'm, tr- I'm hoping that that science works, but um, it's, it's a very hard financial hit to not make your money in the beginning of the season over there, we get a higher price for them. So to not have great openers is hard. Um, we, we direct marketed 100% of our first catch. We direct marketed like 60% of our second catch on the second opener. Um, we drove back to Girdwood again. And this is like I said, like a three to four hour drive. The weather was good. And we had a buyer for for our fish, I can't remember specifically, but I think at that point we um, sold to one of our first restaurants here in Girdwood that we tried to tried to get ahead of time, and they were hesitant because they didn't know how busy they'd be. And so then they did buy from us. So by like the third opener, it was one of the first times we actually sold out in the fishing grounds. And since then, we've been direct marketing about 50% of our catch, which is way more than usual. And that feels great. Um, 
we're maybe doing it because we're more desperate, uh, but bringing fish back to people and getting that, that reciprocal appreciation instead of just seeing your fish go into a hold for days um, is, is really affirming. We've brought back fish to Girdwood and had one official market. We had a Wednesday bring your own cooler event that was so simple and great. And we have now taken some fish in to be processed. So we're also starting to fulfill our CSF orders, which I honestly wasn't really pushing them because I was starting to be a little nervous. Having the ability to get a higher price for their fish through direct marketing was especially meaningful this year as prices on the fishing grounds for Copper River fish have been unusually low. The price has been extremely low, so that's, that's a big difference. By about $2, the first opener we'd heard they were going to um, have $3 a pound, and that is just, it's like 8 or 9 bucks a pound for the first opener, so it was horrible. But within moments of that announcement, then the other local fishermen-owned buyers were said, no, we're going to do five. Um, so that gives me hope, you know, that you can still want to make money, but offer a fair price. Now, after talking with Emma, I was curious about the underlying reasons for these low prices, as Copper River salmon are usually some of the first and most highly prized and priced fish available on the market each year. In researching this, I learned that Copper River salmon usually are sold directly into a fresh market, often through high-end restaurants. With many restaurants still being closed or offering only limited service, the fresh market for these fish simply isn't producing the same demand, or price, as in regular years. In addition to the low prices, the slow salmon return this year has given Emma and others in her fleet reason to wonder about what underlying factors are impacting the salmon's return. When we talk about how it's slow, slow fishing, everybody says it was a cold winter. And then there's other people who are like, you know, it's, it could be this, it could be that. And I keep feeling like, you know, we're all right. It's a little bit of everything. I'm not sure exactly why this year's numbers are so low in the Copper River and in the Sound, but they are. And I think that as much as we talk about all these other things, when we're talking about low salmon numbers, we, we really got to put it back to climate change and ocean temps warming and unforeseen factors that, you know, affect the salmons, the fish that the salmon eat to survive. And there's a lot of things that, that are coming into play. And um, it's hard to really know how each season will be. So, I like to stay positive, but I'm also a realist, you know, and um, when I'm talking with people about things and when I'm talking with my husband, how he wants to get a bigger boat, I just say, honey, like, keep it in check. This is a, this, the salmon population is a volatile population. And, and so I think beyond all the COVID and beyond other things that we're facing, I think the real concern is just getting the awareness out that supporting sustainable fishing is, is a very simple way to stay in tune with you know, the food systems that are helping support our communities and support our environment instead of over overfishing. And so I, I feel that right now, as much of anything, I like to talk to people about this fish came from us straight to you. And in so many ways, we just try to keep our imprint as low as we can. And, and I, I like to share that with people as much as anything. So...
Another one of our regulars that I've had the pleasure of checking in with again is Melissa Collier of West Coast Wild Scallops in BC, which, quick sidebar, Phil, you and I actually tried Melissa's scallops recently, and were they not incredible? Yeah, they were absolutely fantastic, and my daughter in particular just loved them. Now, the tricky thing about those scallops is that they're a little bit daunting to the average consumer. Even as someone who considers myself to be quite seafood savvy, I was a little bit intimidated by the scallops in a shell. Yeah, they weren't quite what I expected to see when I opened the box. This was actually something that Melissa initially mentioned as being a challenge for them at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Due to the nature of this unfamiliar product, their primary market is restaurants. And so with those being closed, their scallop business had effectively lost their market and needed to rapidly pivot. Over the last few months, Melissa and her husband Joel have been able to do so, finding direct-to-consumer outlets to sell their scallops to. And now, the focus is all on the current prawn season. Um, yeah, so I guess a lot of the scallop stuff that I've been working on and sales with associated with our scallop business has kind of been put on the back burner just because we were getting ready for prawn fishing. So there's a bunch of pre-season work that needed to get done in order to um, get ready for that season. And then I was fishing. Uh, prawn season started on June 4th and I left with my husband on the 1st. So I've been gone the last couple of weeks and I just got home uh, two days ago. Things are still slow. I know restaurants are opening, but it sounds like a lot of them are opening at reduced menus and reduced capacity. So, so far we haven't seen any pickup in, in our business. One of our main customers, well, actually, as far as I've seen so far, even some of the menus where scalps were on the menu have not really been put back on in the interim because of their reduced menus at the time. So we haven't really seen any change in our business with regards to our scallop sales. I'm hoping that as things progress, that'll change. Really excited that Skipperados has opened a new pickup location in our town, which is really exciting to be able to say that people can get our product here. Um, we're fishing prawns for them as well, so you can get both our scallops and our prawns through Skipperados. There, they had a, a fisherman that they used to work with for prawning. Uh, however, this person leases their prawn license and with how uncertain things were earlier in the year it sounds like he had chosen not to lease the license where we were going fishing regardless um so we had touched base with skipperados and we were kind of their backup plan and since their original fishermen had chosen not to fish we they were asked if we could they could get prawns dressed so it's pretty exciting that uh this is kind of one, well, this is going to be the first year that our prawns are actually going to be staying domestically and, and going into Canadian markets. So this reminds me of something that we've heard in a number of our interviews, that a number of fishermen have really lamented the fact that so much of Canadian caught seafood is exported outside of the nation. It sounds like this is a really interesting development for them. That being said, Melissa also contrasted the good news, so to speak, with the continuing challenges and worries around COVID-19. It has been really interesting to see how people are adjusting and changing and redefining the way things that move forward. And it'll be interesting to see, not just with the fishing industry, but with every, everything in how our society operates, it'll be interesting to see what things stick and move forward in that direction because it's a new system that works or, you know, what reverts back to what it was before. But um, it's 
it's a little interesting too. I mean, on on the flip side, like things are opening and it's exciting that things are slowly opening, but in our family, we're not accessing a lot of those things that are opening either. Um, a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're fishing, right? I mean, my husband is fishing and for him to come home into our home port and for me to be able to see him and see our kids and get him supplies and groceries and stuff like that, there's a lot of precautions that we're still taking as a family to make sure that when he comes home, he's coming home to a safe place and we're not going to potentially be providing any kind of source. So we're not going to be, you know, putting ourselves at risk for getting COVID and then potentially transferring it onto him. Um, for us, if our, if anybody gets sick, even with a cold on the boat, the boat shut down until everyone is symptom free and et cetera. Right. So um, there's a lot of precautions that we were taking in response to that, that, is a really interesting way for me to try to operate when the world is opening, but we as a family aren't. It's been really remarkable to hear about the sacrifices that seafood harvesters have been making and how they've continued to remain so resilient in the face of such adversity these last few months. Someone else that I've had the pleasure of speaking with regularly is Buck Jones of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission. His story has been one of the most impactful ones to cover over these last few months as Buck and his community have experienced so many changes from having to make adjustments to culturally significant salmon ceremonies the tragic loss of a community member to COVID-19, and having the future of their commercial salmon season up in the air. When I spoke with Buck this week, he shared that while things are finally beginning to settle down a little bit, there's still a lot of uncertainty in the air and a lot of precautions still being taken to keep everyone in their community safe. We've kind of been working with a couple of uh, tribal organizations to really kind of address the messaging of COVID, you know, the social distancing. We've also had a, a scheduled commercial season uh, set on the, it'll be on the 22nd of this month. So it'll be a commercial gillnet season, just a couple nights of fishing. It's a really short window because of the, the, the low returns. So uh, with that being said, the management season switches to summer in the mid, on the 15th, but we're going to take that first uh, week to fill some of our ceremonial fishing that we had for, for our tribes. They didn't quite get the numbers because of uh, no, no fish in the, in the spring. So they're going to use that first week for the, each tribe to fill those permits. And then, like I say, there'll be a commercial gillnet season that next week. And then after that, we we have platforms where they fish off the off of the main stem of the Columbia, so they keep those that that fishery will be going on, and that'll still allow for commercial uh, commercial sales. And I had to do a little bit of looking to see what was going on with the uh, opening of markets and restaurants. Oregon and Washington are going at their openings in different phases. Uh, Washington's uh, in like their second phase and getting ready to work on their third phase. And so it's allowed dine-in restaurants to be open and stuff like that. And I even look, went and looked for uh, the wholesale buyers if there was an interest. And and there is an interest for for them uh, in the market 
to receive some fish, you know, it's, it's not going to be, well, obviously it's not going to be a large season where we're fishing for weeks and weeks and weeks, but each one of the uh, wholesale buyers that I've talked to said that they have, they have room for fresh fish. Um, uh, one concern is the, the impacts of the COVID and the processing uh, facilities. This this week we had one on the Oregon coast that had 124 positive cases. So on a couple of previous conversations, you'd mentioned that you were maybe looking at exploring like apps and ways to direct market catch. And I was wondering, like, is that still something that you're looking into? It is. And I think that I guess I should tell you about that development that's happened since then is uh, the Oregon Department of Agriculture and I think Oregon Sea Grant and a couple other partners are uh, combining a partnership to have a marketing platform for all this, the impacted uh, fisheries, shellfish fisheries in the state of Oregon. So they're going to even actually have a uh, link kind of like the local catch where there's a marketing on there. So uh, we wasn't able to uh, put our name on there to be a partner, but we're going to, we're going to utilize the program that they're doing. So we are looking at that. And then we're looking at some other fish lines. Uh, Maybe uh, there's a couple other ones that we have to touch base with. So For those of you who are new to the world of fisheries direct marketing, Buck just mentioned Fishline, an app that lets fishermen list their catch and location online so that consumers can buy seafood straight from the boat, dock, or the harvester. He also mentioned Local Catch, who are a continent-wide network of fishermen, organizers, researchers, and consumers committed to providing seafood through community-supported fisheries and other direct marketing arrangements. You'll be able to find the link to both the Fishline app and the Local Catch Network in the online details of this episode. Buck also talked about the value of having direct-to-consumer style marketing already in place prior to COVID and how that has allowed fishermen to weather early closures to their fisheries and rapidly changing market conditions. We've had a pretty good uh, direct-to-the-public sales uh, going for numerous years. We have an 800 hotline that I kind of man or whatever, and I've been getting calls on that, like, well, when it, when's the tribes going to be able to sell, you know, to sell the fish or whatever. So I think that having that already established will will sustain us if the markets are down because we do do some pretty good direct uh, uh, to the public sales. Uh, our community's been really good, um, allowing our fishers to kind of set up like a row of vendors in the, in a parking lot. And so it's a known entity. And so people, and it's closest to the Portland uh, metropolitan area where the majority of our population that uh, buys our local fish comes from. So it's, you know, it's 45 minutes away. But there's other sites up and down along the river. And so I think it, it, it will sustain us and it'll keep us going. I think if we didn't have that already in motion, then we would be scrambling. Looking in that magic ball, I think the prices are going to be down a little bit. You know, I hope I'm completely wrong, but I just think it is because, uh, you know, some of these, some of these restaurants that were, were there, they're not going to be there. But even though there is uncertainty about prices for salmon in the upcoming season and whether restaurants will be open and buying fish, Buck is still receiving phone calls from local consumers who are eager for their fishery to open. 
I actually had got behind on my announcement that I have on our 800 number, and it was still from last fall when we had our last fishery. And, and, and I changed it and said, okay, the tribal fishery is not, is not open. And, and then you can push like number five if you want to speak to somebody. And even after I stopped that and saying that there's no fisheries, they're, they're like hitting number five and say, okay, well, we're wanting to know when the fishery is. So I think, uh, I'm just hoping that that's a real good sign that there is a, a demand. You know, this is one thing that has been consistent across all of these interviews that we've done these last few weeks. And frankly, it's so reassuring to hear that communities are rallying behind local seafood harvesters during this time. Looking further down the coast, we've also been speaking regularly with Jordan Kasslinger from San Diego, who's attributed the success of the Tuna Harbor dockside market throughout the pandemic to the near relentless public support that they've received, both at the in-person market and at their new online storefront. So it's definitely hasn't slowed down at all. If anything, I think it just continues to pick up every week. Um, we had in with different seasons opening, we had groundfish open and Sea bass season starts uh, the 15th, so I think that's three days from now. So when sea bass starts, it's kind of when more people come to because it also brings yellowtail and all the summer fish that everyone's like super excited about. As things start to open up more, especially here in California, um, we still have the same people, at least 20 to 30 every week that are return customers, but I'm glad that we stay about 150 because I feel like that's still a pretty good number to reduce the line at the market it goes back to that 20 to 30 minute wait in line instead of the 45 minutes to an hour that people were saying in terms of online it's been going pretty well it definitely we've had one week where we had 270 and that was mother's day weekend and that was a lot for us and ever since then it's it's averaged like 150 to 200 and i think the only reason we did so well for mother's day was because people it was a holiday So we're thinking our next big like online day is going to be the 4th of July, hopefully. Um, But we've been working a lot on developing the website. We actually got a grant from Slow Food California to help with our online stuff. So we're going to put that towards developing some content for different aspects of the website. Do you think that um, that what you're seeing right now will continue like post COVID and people are going to continue to come to the market and continue to buy online and like continue to eat seafood as regularly as we're seeing right now. I think so, especially San Diego being such a seafood centered city and because the market's been so successful for so long before COVID. Um, I really don't see it being a problem in terms of like losing customers. If anything, I think we've just gained more in the last three months, I guess now it's been, um, online. I could see slowing down a little bit once more opens up, but even then I think there's going to be two different groups of people. The ones that are still very cautious about going out, shopping out, um, stuff like that versus the people that are happy that everything's been lifted and what have you. So I think online will, will continue to be pretty steady for a while, if not long-term. So I think we'll, we'll continue to succeed the way we have for the last six years. So let's transition now to the eastern side of North America and visit with Ben Wiper, 
who lives in Newfoundland and is the president and CEO of 3F Waste Recovery, a company that uses waste from fisheries and agriculture to make new products such as cod skin pet treats. Over the last few months, things have looked really tough for Newfoundland's fisheries, specifically the lucrative crab fishery. There were significant disagreements about price and a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not there would even be a crab fishing season. The crab fishery and uh, and lobster are on the go. Um, crab's probably coming here to a close soon if it hasn't yet. Um, I know processors are starting to ramp up to do capelin. Um, there's been, a, I believe, a $62.5 million fund for the acquisition of PPE and other safety equipment as a response to COVID at fish processing plants. Um, I know some are doing temperature checks and, uh, you know, they got the face shields and are encouraging masks where possible. Um, so that's, uh, you know, some of what's going on. Uh, some recent developments uh, or non-developments, in fact, the St. Anthony seafood plant uh, continues to uh, look like it's not going to open this season. It was, uh, there was at least an application for a transfer of ownership. Um, the licensing board uh, for the fisheries are s- still re- reviewing that uh, transfer request. They have not g- uh, given the final seal of approval on it yet. So yeah, that's definitely a big, uh, big hit to the economy in St. Anthony without that plant anywhere from, you know, 40 to 100 employees, depending on, you know, what's been going on in the fishery. And this year it's not even opening. The crab and lobster that's being processed on the Northern Peninsula is going into, uh, there's a Royal Greenland plant there. Uh, that, that's actually one of the success stories uh, for the region for COVID. I mean, they are, they've been going, I think, in, at least since April and probably had people hired on in March to get the plant ready. So that is good. Um, an unfortunate uh, story, I guess, that COVID has helped point out is the lost work that's uh, occurring because we're not processing lobster, uh, to, at least not very much, before it leaves the island. So I'm going to make a educated guess and probably say that 70% of the lobster is trucked off the island live without any processing other than basically being put into a crate and into a shipping container. So, um, you know, there's, there's plenty of lost opportunities there um, that could help address food insecurity issues and uh, as well as local economic needs and community level economies uh, by creating some value added in secondary processing with these products. So while things are still in a state of flux in Newfoundland fisheries, it sounds from Ben like there are a few signs of good news. Ben seemed a lot more optimistic about the future of Newfoundland fisheries in these conversations than he did the first time we spoke with him. Yes, yeah, so over the last couple of weeks, there has been a general sense of a more opening up of the markets, uh, particularly international and export markets. Some interesting developments uh, locally within Canada are some of these new uh, food reclamation programs coming out because of the surplus food uh, being produced by seafood processors, you know, um, uh, cattle farmers, uh, poultry farmers, other types of farmers. Uh, the government of Canada recently announced a fund to help ret- well, retailers or other people who maybe want to start a business um, purchase some of the, this overflow food that doesn't have an international market. So there's, they're actually incentivizing some innovation within you know, local communities or regional economies uh, which I think is a phenomenal idea. Uh, it, it's very uh, progressive, in my opinion. So I, I do think it's, uh, you know, there are some uh, needles in the haystack here that uh, are coming out of COVID as well. And, and I think that's an example of one that 
has happened recently. Now, let's hop down to Massachusetts, where Tracy Sylvester and her family have been spending the last few months doing direct marketing of their Alaska-caught seafood in the area around Boston. Up until recently, Tracy had been doing door-to-door deliveries of frozen fish, but as Massachusetts has slowly reopened, she's been able to return to the farmer's market as well. Yeah, so I did the SOA market, the one that I had mentioned to you um, a few months ago, and it finally reopened, and I was kind of anxious about doing it um because i didn't really know i had no idea what to expect um but it went really well they did crowd control so people have to sign up for a time slot to come into the farmer's market and everybody was really respectful and it's a really happening place but with this everything's dialed way back so the booths are all spread out there's only 20 vendors where there's usually a hundred and you know, so a lot of the customers are coming up and being like, wow, this is so different. <laughs> and so it seemed like people were just really grateful to be out making those connections that they'd been missing. Something like a farmer's market, I think is, um, I'm realizing more than ever that a farmer's market is, it's, it's really healthy for people to get out and have those kind of interactions, especially around things like food or art. It feels really good to connect with your artist or your fisherman. Well, I was going to ask, like in past conversations, you mentioned going to farmer's markets before COVID and how valuable it was for people to be able to get to know you as the fisherman. Essentially, you are a part of the product, like who you are as a family and as a harvester. So in a situation where you're not really supposed to be having these longer chit chats, did you find that it, people were able to ask the questions that they had or, or was it kind of like uh, you had to, had to move people along? Um, the rules are that you have to stand back and that you can't get into like chatty long conversations with the vendors. So, you know, like I'm a talker, so sometimes I'll end up like getting into it with people and then, um, it can be tricky to move on to the next customer sometimes because you just start getting this instant bond with someone. Prior to the farmer's market reopening, Tracy had been working with consumers through online orders and doing home deliveries herself. As she returns to the farmer's market and her sales volume starts to increase, her connection with her fishing co-op back in Alaska is critical to have a steady stream of frozen stock to offer. It's too expensive and too risky for us to set our whole season's catch aside or even a significant portion of it and get it cut, vacuum packed, frozen, shipped all the way to Boston, pay for cold storage, and then start trying to get people interested. you know, you want to ship at least you want to ship at least a thousand pounds to make it efficient, which is still a lot of money and a lot of fish. Um, and so the great thing is that the co-op is backing us up, and we can basically get more fish when we need it. It's almost like having fish on tap. The fish really does sell itself once I get it out there. Um, a lot of people have been looking for this for a while and a lot of them have told me like they it's just they're so refreshed it feels so great for them to talk with the person who's catching the fish in Alaska and you know they get a different story when they go to different fish bongers um, as far as what's sustainable and what's not Um, it's not just that 
an Alaskan fisherman is, you know, fun to talk to and convinces you to buy the fish. It's that the fishermen like really know their product. They, we really know our, our role in the marine ecosystem. And we've spent a lot of time contemplating how we feel about it and whether it's worth it. And so it's really nice to have people come and there and meet me halfway. For Tracy, though, this year still remains full of challenges. Last time we spoke, I asked her about her plans to return to their fishing grounds in Alaska this summer. Going to Alaska right now doesn't feel responsible. Um, And that's partly because we have kids. So, you know, family fishing, fishing as a family commercially is goofy on a good year. And this year it would mean taking a three-year-old on a plane across the country, trying to get him to wear a mask the whole time and hoping, you know, none of us catch it. We feel like we could get up there and quarantine and make it happen. But all the uncertainty that has led us to this point, we just haven't been able to make a call. So basically, we are just realizing we're not going to be able to get up there and get the boat ready for King Salmon opening, which is usually a troller's bread and butter. But we've been marketing down here, Coho, we haven't sold any King. And the glory of it all is that we are getting a better price for our Coho. So there's no need for us to chase Kings. (laughs) There's no need for us to feel this pressure to get up there July 1st. I mean, it'd be great to make that extra money, but we're just lucky that we have something going on that we can stick to fish marketing here. If we didn't have it, we'd probably be up. We'd probably be under more pressure and just have to get up there. As consumers of seafood, or all food for that matter, we've become very accustomed to being able to just go to the store and get whatever we want. But COVID-19 has taken away some of that luxury. So what I'm so encouraged by is that people are responding positively and finding this new way of buying seafood to be an improvement, not just a fallback. This really matters to the fishers because when you go into a store and buy whatever you want, it requires no commitment on your part. But now, consumers are faced with developing relationships and committing to buying shares and being willing to be flexible and take on some of the risks that the fishermen take on themselves. Now, we have one more stop for this episode, back here in Ontario, where this week we checked in with Carson Miner, who you may remember from our episode five about the Great Lakes. Carson's season started late this year as restaurants were closed and processors stopped buying fish for a while as they coped with the early stages of COVID-19 in Canada. Since then, prices for perch have risen substantially, and they've been fishing on limits for pickerel, which have seen comparatively very low prices. For the first time since we started talking to Carson in April, things seem to finally have settled out this week. We're, we're used to, to every day being different, but uh, in aspects of just normal business with prices and demand and stuff, uh, it hasn't overly changed a lot of recent. I think with patios opening up in Ontario and different stuff like that, uh, demand will probably go up. So there's not a lot of perch right now on the market. So I think they're looking to get ahead and get some perch for when these restaurants do start uh, going back towards a little more capacity. There wasn't a lot of perch in the freezers to start uh, from last year. And then after kind of missing most of the spring from being shut down, I think they were expecting 
larger harvests when they did open up and uh, they did, haven't really seen that yet in some zones of the lake. Other zones have been better and uh, maybe more of the middle of the lake has been less productive than they would have really hoped. So I think they have a little bit less supply at the moment than they were kind of looking to have. So the demand for purchase much higher. That's why we saw from the beginning of the year, the prices go up uh, like from $2.50 a pound to $3.50 a pound, which is like an extravagant amount percentage wise to change in one year. We would not see that. Now, that high price for purchase of some concern, because restaurants are already stretched and operating at partial capacity, they may not be able to pay an increased premium for Lake Erie fish. Even last night, I went for a perch dinner, and uh, the owner said to me, you know, like, the price has gone up a dollar twenty-five a pound in the fillet. So, you know, when they're kind of just getting by as it is, it, it's tough to stomach uh, prices going up on anything. I think that it's a little bit easier probably to sell them in, in the USA right now with uh, the American dollar being so much stronger. So uh, it's still quite reasonable for, uh, for them to be bought in the States. Two years ago, the freezers were full of perch and we were on a weekly limit of perch that we were allowed to bring in. And we, they wanted pickerel bad, and it was as much pickerel as we could bring in the whole year. Uh, and now we're just looking at the exact opposite. So things change really quickly, and you just never really know what to expect. And talk about not knowing what to expect. Just as we were wrapping up production on this episode, we got a message from Carson that things had again changed. Okay, so a few things have changed recently. Uh, we were informed today that we can uh, harvest an unlimited amount of pickerel. Uh, to that, our quota allows. Um, they're going to put some restrictions on the west end where the water is much warmer on how long they can leave their nets in the water to uh, protect quality of our harvest. So production will probably drop for the whole lake wide. So in areas where we're with cooler water that we're still allowed to uh, put more time on our nets, uh, which allows for better harvest. Um, we're allowed to bring in larger amounts of pickerel now. So, I mean, that's pretty good for the industry as uh, a lot of guys were meeting their weekly limits and uh, having to stop. Thanks for joining us. Social Fishdancing is a production of Coastal Roots Radio at the University of Guelph. We will be bringing you the voices and stories of small-scale fishermen and women from around North America for the foreseeable future. These interviews and episodes are being recorded week to week, and we aim to bring you a new one every other Tuesday. To connect with the people you've heard on this podcast, including fishermen, visit us on the Coastal Roots website at www.coastalroots.org. Coastal Roots Radio is funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and the Errol Food Institute at the University of Guelph. We also receive support from the American Anthropological Association and the Local Catch Network. Today, we heard from Emma Kramer, Melissa Collier, Buck Jones, Jordan Kosslinger, Ben Wiper, Tracy Sylvester, and Carson Miner. You're listening to Goodnight Kiss, 
by Movie Theater, available on the Free Music Archive. See you next time.